Hello, welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Jill Anderson, filling in for Matthew Weber. Today, we are speaking with Karen Chenoweth, the writer-in-residence at the Education Trust, and a longtime education writer who authored the trilogy, It's Being Done, and most recently, the book, Schools That Succeed. Karen has spent much of her career identifying what makes high-performing and rapidly improving schools in low-income communities and communities of color successful. Welcome to the EdCast. Thank you. Karen, you've built a career in some ways of essentially providing hope to educators and low-income communities of college that there are schools doing tremendously well despite the odds. How do you continue to hone in on that, and what inspired you to write your latest book? So I've spent 12 years learning from school leaders in, in those unexpected schools, and over the years, I felt I hadn't properly conveyed the knowledge they had shared with me. And so I, I wrote schools that succeed out of a really deep sense of obligation to them. Um, I, I agree that educators need hope, and they need clear, un, clear pictures of what that hope looks like. It doesn't, it, it's, um, these are complicated places, but they can be replicated in community after community after community. And so I, I, I wanted to both share the knowledge of the unexpected school leaders and continue to convey this idea, this work can be done. So you often write about outlier schools, and you just talked about unexpected school leaders. What does that mean when you say outlier school or unexpected school? Well, it's it's what you what you said. The unexpected schools are schools that they don't have entrance requirements. They take all com- comers, and they have large populations of students of color or students from low-income families, and they perform at least at the level of white middle-class schools. Some of them are at the top of their states. Uh, the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization, hired me 12 years ago to help find and learn from them. And you're right, some people dismiss these schools as outliers. They say they represent a statistically insignificant percentage of schools. I think that is a very peculiar way of thinking, and it may be uh, peculiar to the field of education. The example I use in the book is that bridge engineers did not dismiss the Brooklyn Bridge as unreplicable. They studied it. And then they built the even longer Verrazano Narrows Bridge. Um, Other fields study outliers to learn the lessons that they hold. And I think education should as well. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people would agree with that. So how do you go about identifying these schools and finding them? So the schools that I write about in, in schools that succeed, each of them has a different backstory, and I kind of go into the backstories um, in the book. But uh, in general, I always start with the data. Um, I look at state assessments and other data such as graduation, attendance, suspensions, all the data on state report cards. And once I find a school that I think looks interesting, and, you know, sometimes it'll emerge from news reports or something like that. Um, You know, once I find a school that looks interesting, I talk with the principal to try and find out what it is the school is doing to get such good data. 
And then I visit and try and talk with students, teachers, parents, administrators, anyone who can help me understand what it is the school does to be as successful as it is. A lot of times people who study schools, they're looking for program implementation or they're looking for a particular practice and how it works and whether it's effective. I didn't start that way. The way I started was this school is successful. How did it get to be that way? And that encompasses a number of different kinds of possibilities. Some are program schools, for example. Some are not program schools. But um, in all the schools, the school leaders always talk about the systems they put in place. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I wanted to try and convey in this book. Right, I was going to just say throughout the book you're examining these systems sort of of success, if you will. And you mentioned visiting a school and an assistant principal unveiling a master schedule on a wall as this eye-opening piece of what made that school successful. When you think, when you hear master schedule, it doesn't seem like the most titillating thing. Um, can you expand a little bit more on how that moment highlighted the importance of systems as powerful tools of improvement? Yeah, so, so this was actually before I started working at, at, the, at the Education Trust. I was writing a column for the Washington Post on schools and education. And I, had, um, I was working in Prince George's County, which is just outside Washington, D.C. And I had seen a news report that this one particular high school had, got, had been recognized by the College Board as having the most AP, uh, uh, African-American AP uh, test takers in a particular subject uh, in the country. And I was like, wow, that's, that's quite interesting. I, you know, I need to go learn about that. So I went, and I expected the principal to kind of immediately tell me about the great teachers he had and the um, classes that they taught and, and how great their instruction was. And he eventually did, and, and the teachers were great, and I saw great conversations and work being done by the students. But the first thing he did was he took me into his assistant principal's office, and he pointed at this huge chart, which had um, all, the, all the periods of the day and all the classes that were being taught in the school. And he said, that's the reason we're successful. And he had me talk with his assistant principal, who sort of talked me through how he scheduled his AP classes and how he systematically expanded the AP classes and the access to the AP classes by his students year by semester by semester, year by year. And I realized that the master schedule, which is what that chart was, um, is really the concrete uh, expression of a school's values. That school valued advanced academic work, and they made it concrete through the master schedule. And I, I was still new to that concept, so I didn't really get it at that point. But over the years, I have seen that um, sentiment uh, of the principal kind of play out in a number of different schools and a number of different ways. So, for example, in this book, Schools That Succeed, I talk about Artesia High School, 
and Artesia High School was a complete mess in 2005 when Sergio Garcia became principal. And he had, almost the first thing he did was look at the master schedule and say, well, this master schedule is going to keep my kids poor the rest of their lives. And what he meant by that was there were almost no kids taking Algebra one or above. And so he, over the summer, got every kid in his school into either Algebra one or above. And that meant a huge change in the way teachers approached their classes. It meant he had to go buy more books because they didn't have nearly enough Algebra books. And um, it meant really retooling instruction uh, in a very serious way. It also meant scheduling additional help for kids, because if you just give them access to higher level instruction and don't acknowledge that they still need help with addition and subtraction and multiplication and fractions, you're just setting them up for failure. So he did both. He, he scheduled he double-blocked in education ease. He double-blocked kids um, who needed it. And at this point, 10 years later, um, there are no kids in classes below algebra. It's all algebra one and, and above. And he's got a college-going college rate that is very impressive. Wow. So that was that was kind of a long answer to your question. <laughs> we'll take it. Um, why are some schools doing better than others in helping vulnerable students? You think? So I actually think it starts with whether the adults in the building believe their students are capable of learning to high levels. Um, and it sounds soft in a way to start with belief. But this is difficult work. It's very difficult to ensure that every student gets an education and becomes educated. It's difficult when, every, when students are well-prepared and have supportive families and all the kind of um, background knowledge and vocabulary that comes from going on vacations and things. It's difficult even in those circumstances. It's, it's even more difficult when kids come in with smaller vocabularies, less background knowledge, um, very stressed families, uh, you know, parents working two, three jobs. If you don't believe that they can actually do the work, it's, it's almost impossible to, for the adults to do the work necessary to ensure that all kids learn. So it begins with a belief, um, and I, I really think in some ways the education field has failed educators, uh, the, the research field, because we're really good at identifying causes of failure. Mm -hmm. We really haven't been good. We collectively as a nation have not been good at identifying what causes success. It's much easier to identify what causes failure. And um, a lot of times teachers see failure. It's, you know, I mean, it's not, uh, they, they haven't made up failure. It, it, it exists. But they haven't had clear visions of what, what success would look like. So that's what I'm trying to convey in this, in this book.
So changing systems isn't a, a quick or easy thing to do for most schools. Uh, do you think there are some small changes that you learned from the schools within this book that maybe other schools can learn from? So, so one of the things I write about is that the leaders of these schools are often asked if, if they can host, you know, if they'll host visitors and um, educators from other schools uh, will go and spend a day or even a couple of days trying to see what they can replicate in their own schools. And a lot of times after really explaining in great depth what it is they do, these leaders will see the, their visitors kind of leave with, you know what, we're going we're gonna to adopt the same uniform policy you have school uniforms, or we're going to buy a computer just like your computer, or we're going to buy a reading program just like your reading program. And the leaders just kind of shake their heads and go, well, okay, I tried. It isn't about a program. It isn't about a small change. But if there were one thing that educators could do, it would be to try and develop a professional distance in a sense, adopt the scientific method. In other words, look at a problem. Don't say, well, it's the kids, it's the parents, it's the community. Say, well, what is it we can do to address this problem? And then make a change, study whether that change worked. If it did, expand and continue. If it didn't, uh, either tweak it or jettison it and do something else and study whether that worked. So, and that work, if you engage in that cycle, that scientific method cycle, over and over and over, you will fail multiple times, but each failure will give you additional information. And you will be able to build on those failures and, and eventually succeed. The scientific method gave us antibiotics and manned flight. It can, it can help schools develop the solutions that they need in the light of existing research. We have a lot of research that's really very um, applicable, but it needs to be applied in very individualized contexts. So we know from John Hattie's work that the most powerful uh, intervention that you can have is effective, timely, uh, on-point feedback. Well, how do you develop that feedback in a itty-bitty little rural school, in a large urban high school? You know, each context is very different in terms of finding those solutions, but applying the research and studying the data, that's the whole thing. Educations of schools are very personal, and educators take things very, they tend to take things very personally. They love their lesson on Charlotte's Web. Right. To develop the professional distance of saying, well, what I wanted the kids to learn out of Charlotte's Web was a narrative form, and boy, did they not learn that. I'm going to have to go back and rethink my lessons. That is, is the whole 
sort of ball of wax, that ability to, to look at what you did, what you put your heart and soul into, and say, well, that didn't work. Now what do I do? Who can I learn from? What of my, which of my colleagues has actually managed to teach what I wanted to teach in that lesson? Let me go look at what she's doing. Let me, let me go see what he's doing. That is not a small change, but it's a change within the capacity of every educator in this country to be able to do. And that would make a huge difference. And then it sort of empowers the educator in a way, because the change starts with you, essentially, right? It, it always changes with individuals, but one of the points of the book is that we can't expect individual educators to, um, to ensure the success of every student. If we want every student to be successful, we have to marshal the full power of schools and not leave it to individual educators. It's too much responsibility. No one individual teacher can ever know enough to be able to teach everything to every child every day. There's just, it's just simply impossible. Atul Gawande talks about this in the medical field. It's impossible to expect an individual doctor to know enough to cure every patient of every disease and every malady. You need the entire medical profession to, to kind of bring to bear. The same thing is true in education. We can't expect individual teachers to ensure the success of every child. It has to be a group effort. It has to be a team effort. Great, Karen. So people who are interested, where can they get a copy of the book, Schools That Succeed? Well, they can go to Harvard Education Press, and they can even read the um, introduction for free. Harvard, Harvard Education Press uh, uh, posted the introduction, and they can buy it straight from Harvard Education Press, or they can go to Amazon. All right, Karen. Well, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us about education and your latest book. Thank you. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Jill Anderson. Thank you very much for listening.